Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. Hi everyone. What you're about to hear is a conversation I recently had with composer Heather Hindman. It's always fun and instructive to sit and chat with another composer. I've known Heather for many years and known of her for longer than that, but this is the first time I've really been able to sit down and have a good chat with her about composing and to share some notes about what being a composer means to us. Heather's trajectory from early signs of interest to her present work as a professionally active and in-demand composer has lots of interesting and unique details to offer. You'll hear us talking about Heather's works and theoretical concepts. We're going to geek out a little bit about pencils and staff paper, and we're going to get into the serious issues arising from the barriers that the new music world and the world at large continue to keep in place for gender and racially diverse artists and for those whose career trajectories do not fit into an assumed pattern of normal. As we go, we'll stop and listen to some great examples of Heather's compositions. Details about these compositions are included in the listings for this episode. Okay, welcome, Heather Hindman. So let's talk about being a composer first, because it's it's a fairly strange thing to do in some ways, and can you talk to me a little bit about why or how you became a composer? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, you know, because you know, to think when's the moment that you sort of identified as that. And for me, to be honest, it, I think it's been there since childhood. So I uh, I I started uh, piano lessons. I don't know when I was three or four, and my my parents pulled me out because I'm I'm sure I wasn't very cooperative or some such thing. And my, my mom always said she just didn't want to deal with me, and I was it's probably a fair complaint. And <laughs> but the whole time, you know, until I was old, I begged every year, I please can I take music lessons? Please can I do this? You know. And and uh, in the meantime, um, so my father actually was a drummer. Uh, and at home, we actually didn't have a drum kit. He would just play, it sounds silly, but he would play in boxes. And so my brother and I always thought he just played the boxes and he'd have brushes and sticks. And, and anyway, I found out much later in life that, that he actually was like a drummer in dance bands in like the 50s and the 40s, you know, in like jazz halls and they toured. And he had this whole musical 
uh, and he did a music minor in university. And I, I didn't know any of these things growing up. So in any case, we, we had a very musical household. Um, we had music going all the time, a lot of old jazz. We have, you know, when he passed away, I you know found records in his stack, like original, like Richter playing the Beethoven piano sonatas and Kempf. And, uh, you know, I must have had a diet of this that I, I don't, you know, consciously recall, but it was sort of there. And, you know, so anyway, and I, I remember we had some keyboards laying around and I always used to play on them and, and beg for lessons. And, and I used to tell my parents, I've got songs in my head. I need to play piano so that I can figure out like what's happening. So finally, my my pleading paid off. And you know, I think when I was in maybe around 10 or something, I got I put in piano. And once I learned how to notate things, I probably started notating things already before I hit junior high. You know, just really terrible little things, you know, with broken triad patterns and melodies, things you do as a student. But uh, it was always there. Like that desire to create was very, very strong for me from the get-go. By the time I was in high, late junior high and high school, you know, I would be writing pieces for like our concert band and conducted them, you know, it was a horrible piece, but, <laughs> but you know, there was a desire there to do it. I bet there was something there. Like, if, can do you still have access to recordings or the scores? Or? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I should check that because I know I have a big box of stuff at my mom's and there's like there's cassette tapes right so this would have been i don't know what late 80s early 90s maybe so yeah they would have been on tapes and i i'm sure i have it um i don't even know if i'd have a way to play it i bet they probably do at the u they just must have a cassette player laying around somewhere yeah i'd be curious to hear it if there was some like oh listen that's that thing i do now but just you know a seed yeah sometimes it seems like there's just genes composed yeah. right and, and you can't really escape when did you sort of feel like you moved on to really feeling like this was what you were going to do, as opposed to just something that you kind of did on the side? I always sort of tore between two things. So I, you know, I remember being in high school, and we, I think we had to do some kind of unit on you know, researching your career. And, and the first thing I did was go to the library, and I looked up what it meant to be a composer. I remember opening some kind of encyclopedia, and there being this picture of this white guy you know, in his university office. And I'm like, okay, so that's, that's sort of what a composer looks like. You usually are an academic, and you, you know, there's sort of all these weird things around it. It wasn't really very modern, but that that was already there to go, okay, what does this life kind of look like? But at the same time, you know, I, I did study piano quite seriously and I, I love that. I always had a bit of a love of maybe pursuing a performing end. And I, I did a little bit of studying in jazz and thought, oh, maybe I should go on with this because I really loved it. I grew up with jazz and with my dad and that kind of music. But, you know, by the time I hit probably my undergrad in sort of more classical studies, it was a no-brainer because every every single thing that I would hear, every piece of new music, you know, the first, I'm sure we all have these experiences. The first time you hear Liggety or the first time you hear Bart, you're like, what is this? Like, it was like earth shattering to me. And it, it just way too enticing to not be a part of, of that world in some ways. Yeah, because I can think of some of those things myself. And, and in my case, it's um, hearing uh, Ives the first time, surrounded by, you know, my fellow students. I only realized afterwards I was the only one that thought that sounded really normal. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, everyone else, you know, I'm like, aren't you excited? And you look on their faces and they're like, this isn't music. And you're like, whoa, you know, you realize, wait a second. I think I see the world a little bit differently, maybe. At what point did you really sort of make the jump into being a professional composer where people were asking you to write pieces, actively sort of seeking grants for you and those sorts of things? 
really kind of at the tail end of, of graduate school. You know, I, I was lucky where I went there, you know, there was really good performers who, who tend to go on and, and play new music when they're done. So I made a lot of really good connections with people in, in school. We were, we were doing things right at the get-go. You know, I should preface that by saying, I think when I finished graduate school, I, I had a little bit of a state of exhaustion, which I don't think is so uncommon after doing that. And I, I think I took a bit of a, a break for a year or so from writing. It was just so, you take in so much, right? So much knowledge and information and writing that I, I kind of needed to detox a little bit to sort of sort out what I wanted to do. But yeah, it was fairly quickly after that. As soon as I was sort of ready, there was lots of opportunities to do, you know, interesting things. So a little ways back there, you mentioned that opening the books and seeing pictures of the white men, inevitably with a pipe sitting in their office, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so as a woman composer, what impact did that have on you? And at what point did you start trying to find out some of the significant women who have voices as composers? Yeah, it's a, you know it's a really good question because I, I think it was sort of a process of discovery and and part of it might have come with age. Like I feel like the older I get, I get increasingly passionate about investigating those voices and really looking back at my own training and thinking about the effect that the lack of those types of role models had on me. Because I actually think it was quite profound, but I don't think I really realized it at the time. You know, I'm not, I'm not that old, but you have to think when I was in school, I was always the only girl in the room every single time. I have never in my entire life had a female composition mentor ever, not at a summer class, not at a master class, not in a training session. So how it affected, I'm not sure, but I, I think there's something to be said with a feeling of feeling comfortable to express yourself. You need to work with people that you you have that trust with. And not that that has to be gender necessarily, but there, there's something to be said when that's never there as an option. I think the first female composer maybe that I, I really noticed actually was Hildegard Westerkamp. Because she's just an interesting person. Here's, you know, you have this sort of image of the the strong, you know, European white male composer that shouts their, you know, beliefs from the mountaintop. And here she comes, <laughs> you know, this, this wonderful, you know, naturalist, completely different perspective. And I was in isolation. I think there was one other female colleague in graduate studies out of 20 or 30 students when I was there. It's hard to to say how it affects you, but in, in hindsight, I think I probably would have had certain circumstances where I would have been more brave to try things had I felt more in my own skin to do so people I've worked with are wonderful. It's, it's nothing that anyone did or said by any shape of the word. You know, I've only, only ever had positive encouragement, but there's just something about that lack of identity that's, that's quite powerful. So you never had a mentor who uh, was a, a woman composer, but I was wondering if there's anybody in particular that you came in contact with that had some kind of a profound impact. Maybe not in, in the sense of that I worked with them. I mean, there's certainly people's music that has stuck with me and, and still does. You know, certainly, you know, uh, Anna Kolovic comes to mind. You know, she's a real powerhouse in Canada and certainly out East. I remember when I first heard her work, I think it was a chamber orchestra piece. And I was, it was just blew my mind and that, you know, that it was sort of this female composer and she's, you know, an, an immigrant to Canada and that this amazing story and making this powerful music was really moving to me that we can come from all these different places and, and make this, these incredible imprints on, on our culture. Bigger picture, of course, you know, Kai Seriaho, I think everyone loves her, but <laughs> her music is just incredible. You know, I, I, when I discovered it, it's, it's to this day, I, you know, I probably listen to it once a week. I just, I, I find it just absolutely amazing. And, and again, another composer who, when she worked in the studios in Paris, was, was often the only female 
there. So those two definitely sort of, you know, in, in a, a bigger picture sense, and, you know, and I've got so many wonderful colleagues in, in Canada that it's, you know, it's almost too numerous to mention. And, you know, if you sort of look at that local level, it actually seems pretty optimistic and pretty hopeful with the amount of, you know, wonderful voices that we have in, in our country right now. There are amazing voices. Um, there's still a sense, I think, though, that it's harder work to make your way if you're not a white man. I mean, it's not a sense, it's a reality. I shouldn't even say that it's a sense of that. Mm, yeah, I mean, the numbers tell us there is. So it's, yeah, kind of identifying what those those things are and you know, remedying it. I know I know in my teaching now, you know, I'm, I think I'm extra conscious to just be mindful if you're, if you're mentoring, you know, young female students to just kind of be, you know, to remember that these things are there. And, and, and it might even go back as, as far as, you know, the differences in the ways that we raise kids because there, there's still a lot of genderism in the way that kids are raised. So when students come in and we come in as young artists into this field, we come from very different experiences that don't always lend itself well to what we do. I mean, there's a tradition in the arts where this is my idea. And I'm very proud, you know, you try, like, at least when I grew up, what, girls were not raised to be like that. You had to sort of fight your way out of that conditioning to, to have that voice. You know, young boys from the beginning, they're shown positions of leadership and girls are shown positions of, you know, princesses. There's still all this baggage there culturally, even if we encourage in a community, even that there's that we just need to be considerate of. Think of politics. It's interesting. They always say if you want a, a female to run for politics, you need to ask her nine times. Often with men, you only need to ask once. I, you know, I think just being sort of sensitive to those kinds of things when you're teaching, when you're mentoring, you know, when you're doing programming, even calls for works. I'm, I, I would, I bet no one studied it, but I'd be curious to see if, how, how many women send things compared to men. You know, all those kinds of ratios are important to consider. Yeah. The language of calls is so barrier laden. You know, I was involved in a project to try and set some standards for those, and it was a minefield. I still see officialdom in Canada publishing calls for scores by other organizations that are just saturated with all these things. If you're not an established white man, don't apply for this. Yeah, yeah. It's distressing. Just getting back to a little bit about the idea of being a composer, and, and it's not unrelated to what we were just talking about, but being a composer is really interesting. A very famous composer I saw once said, I'm just so at home in the problems of composing. You know, we just love doing it. But it's also a very difficult thing to do in, in the sense of how long it takes and whether there's support for it financially or even morally, I suppose. Why do you think we keep wanting to do it? Yeah, uh, it's 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 a good question. I, you know, I think about every five years, maybe we all ask ourselves that question, and you know, not in a negative way, but just sort of, oh, you know, especially you're working on a piece and you're really, you know, you get those moments where you're really frustrated or stuck. It's like, ah, oh, why why am I doing this to myself? But you know, you do and you continue, and there's no way you could leave that problem because it will like eat you alive until you solve it, right? It's <laughs> So, you know, why do we? And, you know, I know, I know when I was younger, I, I, you know, kind of finishing high school in that formative years, I, I, I had this thought, I just don't think I can pursue music because it, it doesn't really make a difference in the world. You know, I thought, you know, it should be like nurse or social worker, some of these kind of humanistic careers that really seem to literally make an impact in people's lives. And I, I had this sort of internal moral conundrum about, you know, how, how does me writing music, it seemed like a really like a vanity thing, like a, a really um, a selfish way to spend life. Like I write music because I like writing music. And I, I don't know, I, I struggled with that a bit, but I think I've come to see that. I, I really think that having the creation of music 
whether whether one person listens to it or a thousand people listen to it, like it's it's just such a basic human condition. You know, I, I look at my my kids; they're little, and you know, the first thing my daughter did as soon as she could walk is started dancing. My son, as soon as he could hold a cry, they color. And why are you coloring? Well, because it's beautiful, and that it's a human condition. We we do it because it is makes our lives meaningful. And and I, I think that desire to sort of connect in that way with with other people, whether it's through them listening to our music or through collaborating with performers, it's the very powerful thing. And, and I actually think it's a really, now I think it's a really meaningful way to, to spend your life considering all the, you know, the hurtful things that other lots of places and ways you can live can do. It's, it's actually a really beautiful thing. So, you know, now I compose, it's not really the financial or this and that. I think it's just for that basic desire for, for human connection. Thinking more just about yourself internally when you're when you're being a composer, what happens to you at the moment that you know you're going to write a particular piece? There is definitely an excitement, like you sort of like something lights a little fire under your feet, and you're like, oh, I got to start thinking about this, and yeah, you know, and uh, a little bit of apprehension too. Like sometimes it's sort of overwhelming when you're not sort of starting. Like, okay, I've got this idea that I want to do. You're sort of still, you know, mulling about, and oh. What if I don't get an idea in time to get this thing written and well? And you know, there's sort of that part too. But what I've started doing a lot—I don't know, maybe it's a bad idea—but I, I actually just instantly go to listening to instrumentation for the instruments the commission is for, even if it's roughly related. If there's some, you know, some strings, and maybe I may listen to some string quartets, or if there's winds, I may listen to some solo music or, or whatever. And I, I find that really helps my head kind of get 
into soundscapes a little bit. It's not like I listen to music that I'm going to you know, try to mimic or anything. I try to keep it really purposely diverse. Just sort of helps me kind of get in the zone. And then that exciting butterfly thing starts because I get very excited about the types of sounds that instruments can make, right? Oh, wow. Oh, they can do that. I wonder if they can do this. And it kind of ignites that nervous energy you get. And then I just, I keep a journal actually. I don't really do much. I just sort of start randomly just thinking about this. Oh, it could be that. And then, you know, there ends up being like 15 pieces on the page and 10 of them are probably awful, but I just sort of let it all flow and and kind of go from there. <laughs> are you a notebook person? Absolutely, I am. I, you know what? I actually do it on my laptop, which is funny because I have horrendous, horrendous printing to the point that sometimes I can't read it. <laughs> so I just have like a, you know, a, I just type it in there and then it's nice because whether I'm, you know, out on my phone somewhere, my, like I have it, you know, all right there, I can just write something in really quick. So yeah. Do you still have all of those kinds of notes and things for all of the pieces you've written? I do have some of them. Yeah. I, I you know, because at one point I just got rid of because I thought, well, I don't need these anymore. I wrote the piece. And then I thought, oh, wait, this is actually quite interesting. It's almost like when you, you know, you do personal journals and you, you know, go back and read what your yourself was thinking 15 years ago. And sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it's a little window into yourself. And I, I found that looking at the notes, it's kind of a window into my, my compositional process and notice about yourself that maybe you didn't know you did. Do you regularly look back at them or, or are they just something that you kind of come across and say, oh, what was I doing back then? Not regularly. It's probably more of a nostalgia thing. Like, you know, oh, I want to go see, like, what was I thinking there? And, oh, you know, or sometimes, I don't know if you find this, you listen to it, like an older piece and sometimes you hear things that like, wow, did, did I do that? What was I thinking when I did that? And in bad and good ways, right? And, and so sometimes then it's fun to kind of go look back and, and see some of those connections. For me, sometimes it's, it's that, how did I know how to do that then? And I don't know how to do that now. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Why, why on earth did I not make a, you know, highlight that? That was an important thing to remember. So let's say that somebody's commissioned you to do, do you, do you mostly work on commissions or do you work on spec sometimes and just compose? Usually commissions, just because I don't write a huge amount, you know, lately just being with being a parent. So, you know, when I do work, to be honest, I'm freelance, so I, I need to be paid. <laughs> it's a reality. So, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I enjoy it. I think I enjoy what, you know, I think you get to work with a really nice, diverse array of, of people and stuff. So, yeah. Could we talk a little bit about your process then? And uh, so let's say that X Ensemble has asked you to write a piece and they've hopefully given you more than a week to do it. There's always some time frame and usually it's it's enough, but sometimes it never seems like enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I should preface that with saying, you know, if it's not enough, I actually will say no, because I've just gotten in situations where it's just too stressful and too much. And I, you know, relating back to the why you compose, like to me, that's not, that's not why I do. I don't do it to try to, you know, look at it, look at all. Maybe I do it to get my ideas down. And I feel, if I feel it's not going to work. I just go now, you know what, it's just, this is not going to be healthy for any of us. So, so yeah, I get, um, you know, when I find out who it is, you know, the, the, the first thing I, I, I think about, and I, I try to ask about is performer composer collaboration. To me, there's there's no better way to write a piece. I I really loathe this sort of model where you just kind of work in your basement for six months and show up at a concert for 22 minutes for rehearsal and then never see them again. Like it's really stale to me. And I don't know, I don't feel like it helps me grow a lot as a composer because there's so many fantastical things instruments can do. And I, I, I still don't think we've scratched the surface of, you know, the possibilities and in, in sort of exploring their, their timbre worlds. And I believe fully as much as we know as composers, performers will always know 10 times more than we do. They know their instruments so well. And I, I just 
to me, it's such a, a privilege if they are willing to let us in on that world that they they know and explore. And I, I just, yeah, I really enjoy that that process. So if if they're willing, you know, I like to just kind of sit down and okay, let's just sort of you know try this and try that. It's, it's quite unstructured. I don't have any maybe particular. I may have a few vague ideas, but not a lot written down. And then from there, that really helps me get in a concept for the piece because I try to sort of write it out of the instruments as opposed to imposing my ideas onto the instruments, if that makes sense. So get, getting slightly geeky for a second, you work with pencils still? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was so glad you asked that question because I've gotten super fussy about supplies. So yeah, I actually ordered drafting pencils from an art supplier that are super dark and have a very pointed tip so that I can see them. I don't have to press hard. So it's nice when you're doing a whole bunch of work. They're nice to hold and they um, show up cleanly on the page. Because, you know, sometimes you work with pencil and then like a month later, it starts to rub off. And if it's faint, then you know, sometimes you can't even see what's on there. So so my pencils are super important to me and they're in a little locked box. Like no one's allowed that my kids want. I know you can't have my pencils. They're, <laughs> they're, they're just for me. And then uh, uh, the other thing I actually work on is I work on or I order orchestral score paper. Like even if I'm writing a solo piece, I just I like to have lots of, of space. And so I may just use the top staff and leave like seven blank and leave lots of room for notes. But I pretty much exclusively work on on like huge paper, you know, the bigger the better. <laughs> Actually, wish they made bigger, bigger size than that, but I've yet to, yet to find it. <laughs> I lucked out because I scored. And pardon the pun. I scored some free Canadian Music Center. Remember the stuff they used to have? Eh? That really thick, beautiful paper. No, I don't think I ever ever saw it. I think they just dumped it off at some point about fifteen or so years ago, and so I still have some. So where oh, on earth does somebody order music paper from these days? Um, where did I get so? You know, I got some through Long and McQuaid actually, but they don't have it like in their store. You have to go in, and then they have some special catalog that they can they can order it for you, and it's uh, it's not cheap. But I can get a couple pads of it, and it'll last for you know an average you know chamber music sized piece usually. Unless things are going really bad, then I may need more paper. But <laughs> but yeah, it's uh yeah I li- I like it a lot. And then you know at the end I've got these huge huge stacks of my sketches and scores. And I, I just can't imagine not writing with a pencil and paper. You know, I, I, we talk about this lots in teaching. Obviously, you know, like how do you see your ideas and work in this? box and everything has to be precise when it goes in because they wants it in bars and like our brains just don't work that way. If your sketches and so on are like mine, they've got arrows and... And sometimes kind of gestalt, right? Like you might just put a few, well, I'm going to fill this in later, but I'm not sure with what yet. And you can kind of go back and start to fill in the blanks and yeah. So do you erase things or do you cross them out? It depends how messy it is. Um, I, I'd say I lean more to crossing out, but uh, just more just because it's quicker, you know, it's easier to go like this than to erase an entire page. But if I have, let's say I'm working through something, I have a couple bars I reworked. Sometimes it annoys me having a nice clean, a few bars going, and then this big cross out and having to remember to jump a page. So I may actually like rewrite that whole section if it's, you know, somewhat cohesive. So presumably, I guess nowadays, really, performers do expect computer notation. Yeah. I don't know what people keep calling it engraving, and I don't quite understand why I call it computer engraving because it's actually an oxymoron. You're, you're not doing anything other than, yeah. George Crumb used to engrave his own score, right? He used to do them like he actually cut the plates for those and everything. Mm. 
So beautiful. I feel like it's a lost art. You know, I, I think even making parts for this, this most recent piece, you know, I, I said, you know, I actually want to get them printed because I want the parts to not just be, well, A, they don't fit on normal size paper, which is part of the problem. But even, even if they did there, when we have that in like a PDF, like as if it's like a business document <laughs> in, in an eight and a half by 11, you know, like, you know, music, you know, is, is nine by 12 or 11, 10 by 13. Like that's what music is supposed to look like. And there's a certain presentation of our music to other people that can sort of even change the way that we approach it and see it by, by that visual aspect. And I don't know, it's becoming increasingly important to me to actually own the whole process, not just engraving it, but like printing and um, even the fonts. I'm starting to buy fonts and, and actually really think a lot about the, the finale fonts. All our scores look the same. And that's kind of not a lot of interesting things with that. Like I enjoy looking at older scores, you know, all the different, even publishers, they all have their own look and it's, it's sort of nice. It has a character to it. At one time, we, everybody I knew wanted to get published by Peter's edition. Paper was that sort of weird, beautiful, not white color. Yeah, it's kind of gray almost in a way. Like, yeah. Uh, you've already mentioned that you have some children and which naturally leads to a busy life. But um, in your ideal world, do you have a way that you can schedule your, your daily routine when you're composing? It's definitely my my ideal world. Pre and post parenthood are obviously very different, and I, I I kind of laugh. I think most parents do of you know I, I, that I actually thought I was busy before because there's just it's a whole new level of time management. Because before I would just yeah I'd get up and I'd have a coffee and go for a nice you know soothing walk with my dog in a natural area and imagine the pee you know like it was this is really lovely full day process. And now it's like I've got uh, 62 and a half minutes before someone you know um, I have to go back and you know uptake duties and it's 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 been quite difficult to be honest because I, I generally like a really focused period. I like it quiet. Um, I like at least two hours because you can't get anything done in less than that. You just start working and an hour is gone. Like it's kind of a waste of time in a way, unless you're just doing mechanical things like editing layouts and stuff. But for the actual creative process, a big chunk of time. So so I've been doing a lot of writing at night since becoming a parent. That's when it's quiet in our house. And my husband and I are very, very equal partners. So even if I want to work, you know, he's more than happy to watch the kids, but it's still super noisy. <laughs> so, you know, even if you have childcare, it doesn't really solve the problem of having that space you need, you know, to go inside my piano and listen for the tiniest little resonance and see if it's there. like, you can't, you need time to do that. Right. So right now it's been at night. And when I have a minimum of a, of a couple of hours, I always like to drink tea when I compose. I don't know. I guess that's a, <laughs> a character thing. I just like having a soothing cup of tea on the, on the side. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's for me is, is really lovely. And I, I've always been a night person, so it's not unusual. That's actually probably been the hardest thing being a parent is, you know, like, you know, I used to sleep till nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. I would just write till four in the morning. Like that's just what I did. And it worked really well for me. But so at least working at night is not completely foreign because I think that's a hard switch for, for some people who are maybe more like the early morning. You know, some composers do that. I think they get up and that's the first thing they do is that discipline of the morning. That's never been me particularly, but, and my life is a little bit more there are some fixed things in my life now that mean that I have to pick and choose. That's right. You know, we live in the real world and we have other responsibilities. And I, I think that's been a good lesson to learn because I, I, I always had it, you know, I, I think I just, I need to wait till it's like this, then I'll be able to write better. And, you know, sometimes that discipline factor really needs to kick in and you just, you know what, you just need to go do this. <laughs> and it may not be perfect and it may not be the ideal, but, you know, you, you just get something down on the page and at another day you can decide if it's good or not, but just get it out of you and go from there. Yeah, and you have it. So you have a nice studio of your own to work into. It looks, I can see it from here. I 
I do. Yeah. Yeah. I have a nice little, my, my husband, my very sweet husband actually built this for me when we, we moved into our house looking for somewhere to live. That was one of the important features is it needs to have a place that can be a quiet space for writing. And then for, if I'm doing any teaching, that kind of stuff and nice lighting. So at night I can, you know, kind of make it a bit dimmer and nice and calm. And there's a window. So the, you know, there's birds in the yard. If I want to hear that, it's, it's quite lovely. So, yeah. You know, in a period where you're composing, uh, are there things that you do either during, let's say, the two hours you're composing, or are there some things you do that are outside of composition that somehow seem essential to it, whether they're walks or reading poetry, looking at art, you know, any anything like, or indeed listening to other people's music, which is important to some. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'd say listening is actually probably quite important, especially now, like having having littles at home. It's I need something to kind of switch my brain from out out there world mode to to the writing mode. And I find sometimes even just listening, even if it's just five minutes with headphones, you know, so you're really in the in the in the space with your eyes closed. It's like you're lulling into that um, uh, that meditative kind of zone that you need to to, to write a little bit. And I, I find that quite helpful.
part of your process has involved working with specific performers for more than one piece. And one of the ones you've mentioned is Zenia Pastova. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that continues to mean to you. I don't assume that that's a, a process that's over between, between the two of you. So how does working with a specific performer impact you as a composer? never really thought about it till you, you know, you mentioned it, but it is because it is a real treat, you know, usually we sort of do a project here and a project there. And, you know, to just sort of develop these longer relationships with people is, is really meaningful because you, you get kind of a trust with people and, you know, the more trust you can have in an artistic relationship, the more both of you can take some risks and maybe ask a few more questions that, you know, maybe in that sort of typical, I just met this ensemble. I wouldn't want to ask in that context because you're, you know, you're under time constraints and there's, you know, all those other things to consider. Whereas with someone that you know, it's like, hey, well, we did this before. And you have this, you know, hey, you know what we did that? You know, what if we do this? And you, you've got this sort of rapport and, and you also have a, a trust in their skills. And I know all performers are skilled, so I don't, I don't want to say that in a derogatory sense by any means, but you, you get to know what certain people do really well. And then as a composer, you go, you know, I got to build my piece around that because they, they can take this, you know, they help you expand your imagination. I mean, like Xenia is a brilliant pianist. I mean, she's probably one of the leading pianists in the UK and arguably mainland Europe. I mean, she's kind of a household name there. And uh, she can play a C major chord 50 different ways. You know, I kid you, it's just, it's just magic. Like, and I'm a pianist and I, I, I'm just, it blows my mind that the sounds that she can get out of her artistry and her attention to the instrument. So it's been really exciting for me. I think being a pianist, because it's, you know, we always think we know our instruments well, and then you, you meet someone who really knows their instrument well, and you're like, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So those collaborations have been, has been really nice because they've all been, all been on, you know, different kind of concoctions of piano works, whether they're solo or, or live electronics and yeah, really kind of delved into some some interesting textural and, and color places that I wouldn't have maybe suspected otherwise on the instrument. That issue of being able to play a C major chord 50 different ways is something that as I was never really trained as a piano player. So I, I do not understand how chords are voiced. I mean, I do in that sort of like which register they're in or something, but and it's it's fascinating and mind-blowing when you hear somebody, for example, play a piece that has taken that into account. With that experience of Xenia, has that impacted the way you write piano music? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely it has. You know, you, you know certainly in terms of um, kind of imagining virtuosic capabilities, but, you know, sort of the, the performative potential, you know, things that you can do on the instrument, maybe extended a little bit from where I maybe thought the limits were, you know, with, with certain people, maybe they're not there. And, you know, for others, it, it may be the case, particularly, you know, if you're doing things with, with live electronics and stuff, you, you really need performers who, who do that regularly. If you have a performer go to play with live electronics and they've never done it, it can be kind of a off, you know, it can blow up, right? Because they have to know how to adjust their amplitude and treat the system as if it's another chamber music partner and all, all those things become important. And, and so she does all of this stuff quite regularly and and probably I would say knows you know for every piece I know in repertoire knows 10 times that much because she plays so much so you you, you get exposed you know I've, I've actually discovered a lot of really interesting composers through her that I maybe otherwise wouldn't have seen which has been really really lovely. Thank you. 
So Xenia is basically her home is Europe and that's where she mostly operates. Closer to home, we have what was the Violet Collective, but which is now Ultraviolet. You're currently working on a new piece for them. You've mentioned to me that it involves at least partially a process of yours, which you're calling recycled music. And it's something that you developed while working with Xenia Pastavaka. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what recycled music is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I guess it's just a term that I've sort of given it. It's not particularly sophisticated, but it's, uh, it's describes the process really clearly. So, you know, for, for a long time when I'd write, you know, even in, in into graduate school and when I was finished, you know, I, I always struggled to find a way to write that made sense to me. And, you know, you know, we can try, oh, I'll try this or that. And you write a good piece. It never really had that click, like, this is my means of going at this. And I, I, I would presume, maybe you can tell me if it's the same for you, that all composers need to find that way of engagement that works for them, whatever it may be. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, I heard a, when I was significantly younger, I had a really profound moment where I heard a very famous composer say that to somebody at a workshop which is you have to find a way of composing that doesn't necessarily dictate what the music's going to sound like. And yeah, so I've kind of taken that with me since then. So mm, yeah, that's a that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, because it's the it's like the engagement that you have with your yourself and your your process and it, it's not even so much about what it sounds like in the end. It's that that initial sort of internal moment that's it's just so important yeah and i just i really struggled with it for for a long time you know and part of it you know part of it was a bit of immaturity you know because i had all these musical experiences as we all do you know i love pop music and jazz and i've trained classically i also love acousmatic music and i kind of thought you know i just felt like how am i possibly going to bring all these other things that i like when i do this i feel like i was missing out on these other things and so that was sort of one aspect Part of it is a bit personal, but I, I have a bit of a self-loathing of, of consumer culture. You know, I, I really feel like our whole world and society is going in a, in a very terrible direction and has the last 15 or 20 years. You know, everything is just so much and so much stuff and time and music and people are so busy. And I, I just don't think it's a very healthy way to be, you know, and in the musical world, iTunes and Spotify, like there's so much music. Everything is just so on mass. And it, it, it's just, it's a bit overwhelming sometimes. And, you know, I, I thought, how do you find a voice as an artist in that landscape when there's right now, if I stop listening to any new music, there's enough music I'll still never touch in a whole lifetime. So you kind of go, what can I add to that? And then the, the third aspect of this recycled part was um, kind of related to experience I had at an, an art gallery, actually, it was at a contemporary um, art gallery in uh, Montreal. And there was a, a really lovely exhibit by the Brazilian artist, Victor Munitz. And he's kind of famous now for doing a photography type aesthetics, but you know, at the time he was still doing some installations. And anyway, he had this um this huge piece, and that from a distance it looked like just like a like a soldier, I guess, like an you know those little army people, those little green army men people. So it kind of looked like a big recreation of that, just something. Like eight, and I was like, okay, you know, maybe some kind of comment on war and horror. You know, you kind of make. But as you walk closer, what was so fascinating is the material it was made out of was these little green army men. Like, so it was actually tens of thousands of those little green to make this giant monolith of a green iron. And that was a real epiphany to me because I thought it was so fascinating. And I know lots of visual artists do this by using mixed media, but so fascinating to, to take something small and use that 
to make the exact same thing kind of larger. Um, so anyway, let's make a, a short story long here. <laughs> I, uh, all, all these things kind of got me thinking about how to kind of apply this thinking in music. And so it got me thinking that maybe instead of creating new musical material, I could simply gather other music to make new music. You know, there's no need to make something new anymore. And, and you know, on the one hand, it satisfies my my own personal need to kind of recognize my love of jazz or certain types of pop music or you know, classical training I've had. I can I can use any of those sources. I can use them all in a piece. It doesn't matter. It touches on my loathing of consumer culture because I can now I'm not making anything new anymore. I'm just repurposing things <laughs> essentially. And then, you know, of course, this idea of the the structure behind it of, of taking all these dozens and dozens of smaller pieces and trying to reconnect them into something bigger. And so, you know, generally what I do is I, once I have a you know project or something, the first thing I do is collect a whole bunch of sound files, pieces of music. It could be related to, you know, the theme of the piece. It could be related to something the performer told me. There's different sort of nostalgic reasons for it. I just layer them all together in like logic or something in you know, 20, 30 pieces playing. And I take a tiny little slice of it, maybe 10 seconds long. And that slice becomes the genesis for the piece, whatever the piece may be. Everything comes out of it. I find harmonies, rhythm, uh, sometimes there's sound worlds. Um, so the piece I did with Xenia, I actually used that sound chunk in the piece at the end, so you know to um, play with her. But in other works, I've used that and just written a, an acoustic piece, and the the, the audio that has nothing to do with the realization of it, but it's just sort of to get the material out of. Can you tell me a little bit about the ultraviolet piece? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the piece that the, the, when we first started talking about the commission, you know, I had just become uh, a parent. My, my son, I think, was only about six months old. You know, you spend lots of hours, of course, you know, in the middle of the night, just sitting there, you know, trying to get kids to sleep and to eat and all those, those things that come with new parenthood. And one thing I realized is I, I don't think I ever realized how quiet it is at night and how not quiet it is at night. You know, we, we often talk and, you know, there's night music and stuff in the history of music, but you know, maybe at night we're awake for a few minutes and you listen and hear a few cracks and go to bed. But it's very rare you get up and just sit there for two hours and treat it as, as its own sort of soundscape. And it's quite fascinating, actually. I would, I would sit there and, you know, there may be like a creak of the chair and we, li we live fairly close to the LRT server. So often you'd hear like some rumbling or you might hear like, you know, some kind of white noise. But there, there's this whole like sound world in that quietness. And, and I thought that was really quite fascinating, possibly to explore in a piece. So, so that was part of it. And the other part was, um, you know, to do with singing. So, of course, you have new babies, you sing to them a lot and trying to get them to sleep and stuff. And, and I kind of thought a little bit about what we sing to children, which is, you know, usually lullabies or, or something with lots of tonic dominant chords and nice melodies that repeat over and over. And I thought it was kind of funny because it's the complete antithesis of what we usually try to do in new music, which is not repeating things and not having tonic and dominant. You know, we, we, we by nature sort of Ugh, shy away from that that stuff and so I thought what it would it be like to try to make a piece based on that when it shouldn't be that at all <laughs> so so the the ultraviolet piece is is actually based on um the, the the big kind of sound blob I minded out of is a whole bunch of different types of you know lullaby-ish inspired music so there's um there's true lullabies you know like the Brahms lullaby there's a uh, you know, the Berestuce that happens in the middle of the Stravinsky's Firebird, Chopin Berestuce. There's just, you know, some nostalgic pieces of things that I sang to my kids. A lot of the material sort of came out of that. And the, the result was that I got this sort of very tiny little melody from, you know, it's kind of subjective how I take it out of there. Uh, and the whole piece in Ultraviolet is sort of about trying to expose this thing in different layers of that night music. 
So you may sometimes hear more of it. And then at a deeper level of shot, you just hear like a wisp of it. So it's actually repeating the whole piece, but you don't hear it repeating verbatim. And I, I don't know, I just thought it was a really interesting challenge as a composer to try to do something with repetition and actually still keep it interesting the whole time. So that's kind of the basis. When people are experiencing the piece, are they going to be aware of I don't think so. I hope not. Um, I mean, I tried to, you know, there's a lot of color and there's a lot of sort of, you know, noise type things, you know, mixed in with that. Um, you may hear all of a sudden, this, you know, like there may be a pitch of it that kind of creeps sort of in and out of the texture. I think, I hope the only time you realize it is the very, very, very brief moment at the end when it's, when it's played maybe for a phrase or two and then it's, it's gone again. Yeah, it's a great concert, you know, just to, to plug for, for, for the wonderful ensemble because, uh, you know, they're doing, I think, five premieres. I mean, that's exhausting. <laughs> you know, one or two premieres on a concert is a huge amount of work. So, you know, to, to offer five is, is just so generous of them and, and really exciting for the rest of us to, to get to hear and meet some really interesting colleagues from around the country. Yeah, Ultraviolet's record of doing new pieces is pretty substantial now, even more so if you count the Violet Collective that was in existence before that. So ever since I've known you, uh, or known of you, in fact, which predates substantially me actually knowing you, <laughs> I have been aware, for one reason or another, that pedagogy was a really significant part of your life as an artist. This isn't universally true of people I know, but I've always had the impression that it's not just something you do to make some cash. So that 
can do other stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a very serious undertaking for you. Could you talk maybe a little bit about pedagogy? Because you've always taught younger people, or should we call them early learners? Because I don't assume they're all children. Mm. More lately, you're also teaching university students. Mm-hmm. So perhaps maybe you could talk to me, uh, talk to us, I guess, a little bit about why pedagogy is so important to you and, and, and what kinds of things you feel that you bring to it as an artist and what kinds of things you receive back from it. The nature of what we do is there, there is a lot of teaching for most musicians. There's, there's very few who can just avoid, I don't want to say avoid because I enjoy doing it, but you know, some people do look at it as sort of a necessary evil to fund the things that they, they want to do. And I've never had that perspective. I actually really love teaching. I'm quite passionate to a point that it, it's quite hard sometimes because I want to take on more than is probably reasonable you know, with all the other things that I, I have on the go. Uh, and, you know, I started teaching when I was probably 17 years old, like I was really young, um, you know, as soon as I kind of passed all the checks and balances I needed in my piano studies, I, I began and, and it was probably unfortunate for those students at the time, because I really didn't know a lot about, you know, how to impart knowledge onto people. But, uh, but you know, I knew right away, I, I really enjoyed it, you know, for a number of reasons. I think there's such a humanistic quality to to teaching that is so tied to being an artist, this desire to sort of say reach people because it sounds a little bit hokey but you know maybe connect with people I'm not I'm not sure how to word it but this idea that we can use music to sort of make lives more than our own more meaningful is a very powerful thing and I, I think I've always approached teaching that way whether it's someone very young or you know a young adult you know in, in university age or you know I have some students on those in-betweens kind of trying to get into those and I, I find it a real honor and privilege to kind of do that walk with people and I always look at it like none of us would be where we are if we didn't have, you know, mentors and teachers who also took what they did seriously. Yeah, I, I really enjoy working with any anyone who's interested in in learning. You know, I, I don't really teach or work with with people that are just doing it to check some box to do something. I'm not really interested in doing that. But you know, people that are like, I want to learn about music in some way, whether they, whatever it may be, whether it's piano, whether it's harmony, whether it's composition. It's it's uh, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's just you need a great degree of empathy to be a good teacher and a desire to really find a way to respect people's autonomy while at the same time try to broaden them. And I don't know, I guess I think it just makes us better people. Interesting. And so you're, you're working on a project right now that's actually funded by the Canada Council for the Arts. I don't know if there's a name for the project, but it essentially is about creating material that breaks down that sort of assumption that early learners in music have to learn simple assumed normal music and that you wait to introduce them to the really cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. What is the shape of that project? What's it going to be like? A couple of years ago, um, a few, maybe three years ago, I got commissioned by, uh, there's a festival here in town that, that does pieces for school-age kids learning a contemporary showcase. I think they do Canadian composers, which is lovely. You know, they, they have all the students come and they play all Canadian compositions just to let them know like these people are here and they exist. And commissioned me to, to write a piece for that for, for some of the students to play. And I had never honestly in my life thought about writing for anyone other than who we write for. Like it never dawned on me that that would be interesting. Even, you know, I, I was like, well, I, okay, I guess I can try doing this. You know, I've taught a bit. I feel like I kind of understand, you know, different levels and, you know, technical challenges, but I don't know. At the time I was sort of like, okay, it, it was, I didn't know what to think of it. But when I was done, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed doing it. Because it was, you know, as composers, everything we do is about placing limits on ourselves, right? I'm going to put this limit there and that boundary there so that I get this. And this is really no different, but it, it was a really interesting challenge because your limits are quite severe. <laughs> 
you know, they don't have the technology, you know, the, the virtuosity that our performers we usually work with have. So how do you get your ideas out still within those limitations? And I, and I found it a really kind of quirky challenge. So that's sort of where it came from. And then um, anyway, so coming along, I, you know, I've come to realize a lot in, you know, I've adjudicated festivals and done some young composer things. And there's just this huge disjunct in music education between what we do as living, breathing, active composers and what they study. There's students who don't encounter a, a composer past 1920 until their fourth year of university. I mean, it's just baffling to me. And it's, it's you know, it's a lot of it is just, a, I think, a perpetuation of a, a system that they learned that way and their teachers learned that way. And it just off it goes. And I think they might be more excited to actually meet, oh, wow, there's actually people doing this now. Oh, wow, you can actually do this on your instrument. Like, I think there's actually some potential to, to bridge those things. But the individuals, you know, if they're teaching that and they're not comfortable with it, it can be quite intimidating, right? We, we take for granted all this knowledge we have about special notations and, you know, how to touch safely inside a piano and how not to, but, you know, people don't know those things. So my, my goal with this piece was to write a whole bunch of them for different levels, you know, from beginners all the way up, there'll be a couple for maybe early university age to sort of make this music. This is something that you could possibly play. And more importantly, there'll be pedagogical notes for teachers. Here's how you do a harmonic on a piano. Here's, um, here's, you know, when you go inside a piano where gloves are, you know, wash your hands really good, you know, there's ways you can do it safely so that they maybe have a bit more confidence to introduce, you know, all the great music that composers in our country have written to, to students and not just kind of think of it as that's the weird piece nobody wants to play in the, in the syllabus. <laughs> so what form will it be? Like, are you imagining this as being like a book or a single or, or sort of a multi-volume set. Yeah, it'll be like a book, like maybe a collection of about eight pieces in a single single book and, you know, of, of different levels. Yeah. And I have an artist um, that I've, I've worked with, Erin Kahn. She's like a visual artist in Alberta and she's going to do the cover art for it. So she does some nice like kind of wildlife life um, pictures and such with, yeah, kind of interesting textures. Will the levels relate to Royal Conservatory grades? Yeah, ish. Yeah, just because that, you know, frankly, North America, that's what people know. They kind of understand that and it might help them. Okay, this is this grade or that, because otherwise it gets a bit murky of figuring out where things fit when they're not, you know, styles of music people are used to teaching. I think the Europeans think we're kind of bizarre. Like, what do you mean you have these grades and these not, you know, we just study music and you're early advanced and you're mid intermediate. I don't know. We seem to like to quantify everything in North American societies. It's good to know that North America is kind of an outlier in the world of music. There's things we do here that nobody else would ever, and we take for granted. With your university teaching, which is fairly recent, are you teaching composers? I am, yeah. Yep, teaching on undergraduate composers. And it's been great. I really, really love it. It's, uh, it's been really fun to work with, with students who are really interested in, in, in learning about writing and learning. And they have that spark of, you know, we talked about, like, what was that thing I just heard? You know, and it reminds you of that. Yeah, right. This is why we all got into this. There's just that magical discovery world of all these cool things instruments can do and electroacoustics can do. And yeah, it's great. There's a topic that, you know, when you're interviewing artists these days is really almost impossible to avoid. And that is what's the last couple of years been like? For so many of us, it's been a change. We've all been experiencing the public issue of being involved in a pandemic, as well as world events, which even in the last couple of weeks have come home crushingly to us. But also everybody has experienced their own internal things that might or might not have happened otherwise. But I think it's pretty safe to say that everybody has had a unique experience over the last few years, seems to be amplified anyway by the pandemic. 
So I'm wondering, most people, I think, who are artists have felt some change in themselves. So I'm wondering if you have felt that uh, as an artist, you've changed over the last couple of years and whether your approach to composing or just thinking about music in general um, have been impacted. Yeah, I mean, because you're right. It's it's definitely, I mean, how could it not impact all of us and, and for such different reasons? So I, I think it definitely has, maybe in terms of the, the headspace I have when I, I approach writing, um, I, I tend to stress a lot about, you know, things, you know, oh, this is, you know, and I, I feel like I'm vastly improved my ability just to focus and, and sort of enjoy the moment, you know, and realizing there's, there's far larger things to concern myself about than, you know, getting this rhythm right or getting that, you know, and, and it's helped me enjoy writing more because it's not, I don't know that, that there's, there's less pressure and it's not that I, you know, want to write awful music or anything all of a sudden, but I, I feel like the headspace around it is, is a little bit different. You know, I don't mind sharing, you know, as you know, you know, we had a, a really difficult 2020. We had, you know, some personal circumstances that made it very, very challenging, even if there wasn't a pandemic with the pandemic added in it, it just uh, was just a complete nightmare. It was really, really hard. And so I think that informs, you know, these changes as much as the pandemic itself. But because the pandemic sort of made those things much, much worse, delayed access to healthcare. You know, we had a, a baby, we have a pandemic baby. My daughter was born in 2020, you know, the, the best summer ever. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and not navigating all those types of things in a pandemic really, you know, really changes your perspective and definitely trickles into kind of what you're, you're thinking about when you're writing. I feel like I'm more productive now actually is writing. Like I'm sort of like excited, like, oh, you know, you never know when all this is going to be taken away, you know, I better, better get at it. It's a, you know, what a privilege this is that we can just sit here and write music and, and, and people are going to play it. Like, that's amazing, you know, and just to kind of be reminded of those big picture, important things. When you say that you're more productive now, do you mean literally like there's more music being written or just that the actual moment to moment work that you're doing just feels more? Both, I think. The latter leads to the former in a sense, because you're, you're more efficient while you're writing. And, and I'm just really excited to work now in ways that maybe, not that I disliked it before, but it, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's sort of like I just, you know, kind of run down the stairs with a hop and my like, oh, I can't wait to get at this. And, and, you know, because it's like you have something taken away and then it's given back. It's such a gift that you, you can actually do it and you, you see it in a new light. I know there was a sort of almost a heady days of this time two years ago. Well, for some, for some, it was a nightmare. But for artists, I think a lot of artists were talking about the pressure to be productive as an artist might. Productivity is interesting because there's always been that kind of idea, not only that if you have a commission, you have to get it done in a certain amount of time, but also that if you don't do a certain number of pieces over a certain number of years, then somehow you're not really a professional composer. There are people who, for many, many varied reasons, have gaps in their career as a composer because of one thing or another, or at some point in their life, things come along and, and for some reason they are prevented um, or choose not to. The, the world that we live in as composers is built around white men. The fact that white men control it means that it's sort of set to their standards, <laughs> you know, what it means to be a good Canadian composer. But I'm wondering if there's any sense of perhaps our community is opening up a little bit more to alternate ways of being a composer. Whether that is that you don't necessarily compose every year, that you compose in an unorthodox way, or challenge the idea of being a composer. 
Yeah, you know, it's uh, I think it's too early to say. I, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't seen a lot of huge, you know, policy shifts, maybe in the way that grants are done or, or the way that people are writing calls or, you know, all, all those kinds of things. To me, the landscape looks very familiar. <laughs> it's also quite early and change in those things that does take time. You still see all kinds of ample calls for works with with regulations, you know, attached to sort of that will marginalize people, whether intentional or not. We've had lots of conversations around, you know, how ties to age limit, all those things, you know, limit parents and women. And, you know, and I can speak a bit to another angle of that is, you know, how it limits people with, with chronic illness and, and disabilities. And, and we don't talk about that very much in our, in our communities. They're all tied together and the same systems that are in place make it difficult. I've had a chronic illness since I was 20 years old, um, quite serious. And, and I've, I've been through some pretty big ins and outs. Uh, including a delay to my start. I mean, I didn't start my undergraduate education until I was 25 years old because I was sick. Like I was very, very sick, you know, and, 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 and young composers, I mean, you're a senior citizen at 25. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, in the world that we've created is supposedly the model of training people. So there's a lot of sort of um, problems in there. I, I did have one kind of highlighted thing and one, you know, thing that confirmed that it's the same during the process. I think there was a, there's some kind of granting that came out and anyway, I'd inquired about it. And okay, if I did this, but you know, I I think I'd need to extend it to be you know this long of a project if I was going to do it because I, I was I was very sick over the pandemic and had a, a health crisis. So I need more time. When you're when you're ill, you can't work as often as other people. It's just a reality of of having a chronic disease. And you to be smart, you spread things out so that you can manage and you you don't produce as much. Um, and the response was, well, I think three months is a suitable amount of time for your project. And I, I thought right there, you know, for, for anyone in any kind of a situation that doesn't fit that model, it's cut off that opportunity to do projects for that. And it was, it was quite disappointing to hear that response. And I, I think after some thought, I maybe would have written back a bit of an educated email about it, but I, I just left it. But the flip of that, I, I had another one. There was a call for works um, at a festival in the U.S. And you know, they had something on there that pieces had to be written after such and such a date. And I, I just wrote to them and I said, look, like, you know, I've had, I've been away having two children and I had a health leave and I, I, I have a piece, but it's six months before the, the date that you have. She wrote back and said, yes, I'm a feminist. And I realized this challenge and absolutely submitted. So, you know, that's encouraging. It's encouraging that there are, you know, festival organizers and organizations and people recognizing like, oh yeah, okay, for sure. We might have these, but we need to make sure we're being mindful of how it affects people. So I hope it will lean more towards the, you know, that latter story than, you know, the, the former one, but uh, it's to be seen yet, I think. One can hope, but I think active policy decisions have to happen and organizations like the Canadian League of Composers are very active in trying to make that happen. And uh, some presenters are, I think. But in the end, uh, you know, I, I do believe there's still some people that feel like this will just happen naturally. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, unless people, we speak out about it, you know, it's hard to hear. Like I know particularly I would think for, for, cause I'm sure I'm not the only composer that deals with with chronic ill. I mean, there's all kinds of horrible things out there and we have a huge community. So I, I, I would think this actually affects more people than we think it does. I think by nature, people with disabilities and, and chronic diseases don't speak out because you, you're, you're, you already feel like such a huge burden to everyone because you're always, you know, causing issues and getting sick. Now everyone has to does it do everything for you because you're in the hospital. You know, like you don't like to speak out, and so it's it's one portion of that community um, that maybe doesn't get a voice in the same way as we're starting to see, which still needs more with women or with you know BIPOC communities and LGBTQ communities. We have better conversations around those. They still have a lot of work, but I feel like that that you know the disability and the chronic illness angle of it, which is just as equally affected, is maybe not heard as much because of that. 
you know, you need successful policy and, and, and thought about things to solve the things that will help. I, I think that's the heart of it, you know, I, and, I, and I think that's the heart of, you know, why people in all those types of conversations, um, you know, have to post these, these counter arguments that are, you know, whether intentional or not are somewhat discriminatory or this, you know, because they feel attacked, you know, I'm, you're attacking the way I live or you're attacking the way this person lives. So, and it's like, no, but we, we're just having a conversation around inviting people into the community. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's a hard thing to do to convince people that you're not trying to, to say that they've done anything wrong. You know, it's, it's just, we're just trying to make it better. It's a different thing. You know, there's a lot of advocacy work, you know, that for freelancers in general that happen that I think are positive because, I mean, we don't have access to, to social supports at all, <laughs> So as we saw in the, in the pandemic. So if, if something major happens or if, let's say you got cancer and you're a freelancer, you're, you're in big trouble because you have no, you don't have a company backing you up with a disability plan. And it was really eye-opening to me the last few years how, how little supports we have in our country. There's nothing. We don't have a, a support program for people who get sick. There's two months, I think, in EI and then you're done and that's it. So, you know, as, as freelancers, as an artist, that affects our community even that much more because we're already, you know, kind of tentative in our income and tentative in the supports that we have. And, and to enter back into the systems that we work in, you know, you do a grant and, you know, it's usually a six month process. You find something, you do a project. It takes time. So, you know, what do you do when you're just coming back to the, the, the workforce, for lack of better words, to bridge those things? And, and I do think that there's probably policies that could be put in place to sort of help people navigate those, you know, whether you're a parent coming back to work, whether you took a leave for illness, you know, whatever it may be, there's lots of ways to make that more navigatable or at least equal to other Canadians. <laughs> that would be a good start. It's amazing what some people take for granted. You're a freelance artist of, or a freelance gig economy worker of any kind that everybody else takes for granted. Just the fact that, you know, there has to be a public discussion about providing even the smallest amount of dental care. Yeah, it causes a riot. It's a tough uphill uphill battle, and there, you know, we often, especially in our province, the answer is always we should just privatize it, and you know, that's fine if you want to do that. But like, then you need to regulate private people to actually force to offer those things to people, because <laughs> like a lot of the things that are needed are not things that are available private, or or if they are, they're they're so obtusely expensive that they're they're not accessible to the people that need them. Thank you so much, Heather Heinemann. Just finish off on something else then, and uh, not that that's not a suitable ending thing, but kind of downer. Let's talk about something nicer. <laughs> one of the things that I think many artists, anyway, sit around working on current projects, but they also have things that they wish they could do as an artist. I'd like to invite you to just maybe speculate if you had kind of unlimited access to anything, a place a sound creating device or people, anything like that, what, what would you actually do as your sort of dream project? Oh, I think it would probably entail, uh, and this may sound kind of funny considering that, you know, I write lots of chamber music, but I would really love to write a big choral piece, 20, 30 people, you know, not just like a small, smaller group that was outside with you know, sort of spatial placements and in a public place where people can kind of come and hear it and interact with it. Yeah, something like some kind of larger project like that would be really, really interesting to me. Talking about a singing choir or, or a just people with, using their voices? Probably wouldn't matter, you know, as long as they were people that could somewhat sing. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I feel like our community, it actually, I mean, this is a huge choral 
thread here, you know, kind of spills out from the, the program at the university because they have such a good reputation there that people come here to train in choral conducting. I, I just think there's sort of been the spinoff that we have a, you know, a really lovely community of, of different things happening here. So yeah, I think there would be interest in, in those kinds of things here if it, if it could come to being. I think some outdoor things would be great. I mean, we're, we are planning some for June this year. Spectacular outdoor music things are, are wonderful. Yeah. The other one that has always been on my hit list is that that beautiful bell at the Devonian Gardens because you know I'm a so you probably know I'm a I'm a passionate gardener it's my my second love in life and uh I love going out there and just being and they have this big beautiful you know Japanese bell and I, every time I see it I'm like that's just screaming for a, some kind of I don't know I don't know what I would do with it to be honest but I, I feel like it would just be so cool to be the center of a concept for a piece. <laughs> That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together. And of course, thank you for joining us. Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Tsitbatov.